All right. We just want to say welcome. Glad you're tuning in today in a very interesting day and an interesting time where we are just believing God for wisdom, that we would walk in the wisdom of God and also have an incredible measure of faith for what God's desiring to do. And I just want to challenge you as we get into the morning together. I know we've got people streaming from various places, some people gathering in homes. We've got a group of people in Peru that are with us online. Um, I just want to say in the midst of everything going on, we're really believing God that the church will do what the church has always done, and that is in times of adversity, the body of Christ will rise up in grace and strength and begin to thrive in wonderful and amazing ways. I have been on uh, Zoom meetings and online meetings with about 40 different pastors over the course of the last 48 hours. It's just been incredible um, just hearing not just what they are doing in response to the situation at hand, but listening to what God is saying in these moments. And that's a really important part of what uh, we need to do as the body of Christ. We need to all recognize that when people go into desperate times, they will normally turn to God. So we're anticipating that people are going to begin to turn to God for guidance, direction, every step of the way. Of the way. This week, we're going to be putting together a very simple gospel presentation that we'll be able to put online so that you can tune in and, and listen to that and have a clarity about sharing the gospel with people that are going to have questions, people that you're in relationship with that are going to be, begin to turn to Christ for answers, help, and hope. Uh, and you'll be able to also share that video if you would like, but mainly we're wanting to equip the church. One of the things that the pastors in our meetings were talking about was really unique was there is a new wine of revival and a harvest of souls that's coming. And in the midst of what seems to be so complicated, God is doing something unique to reorganize the church to be a new wineskin. Because what happens when we put new wine in the old wineskin? And so we're just asking God for wisdom and guidance and all of that. One thing that is happening right now, the body of Christ is being mobilized in powerful ways to rise up in their connections and relationships. And we're so thankful for the people that are being ministered to by your involvement in their lives. So I want to thank you for that. I started thinking just about closed borders, nations closing, uh, some communities locking down. And it, it took me to Joshua chapter 6, where the Bible actually says there was a, a lockdown that happened in Jericho. And it says very specifically, Joshua 6, 1 and 2, Now Jericho was shut up inside and out. None went out and none came in. So the doors were locked, the gates were sealed, nobody was going in the city, nobody was coming out of the city. And the Bible says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hands. It didn't appear like anything had been given into his hands, but God said, will you see what I see in this time of lockdown? I believe that's the word to the body of Christ right now in this hour. Will you see what God is seeing in these moments? And I want to challenge you in your homes and in your hearts and in your families that we begin to press in deeper to all God has in store. We have said it uh, from the very beginning of the year, will we see what he sees? Do you see what I see? If you remember all those conversations, if you can see the invisible, you can do the impossible. And I know that God is trying to take the church into a place of supernatural expression uh, as we walk out the will, plan, and purpose of God. I, I heard this last week about a social distancing that took place about 400 years ago. It was actually in the 1600s. 
and uh, the universities locked down. It was the great plague of England. And uh, one young man, about 20 years old, was sent home from Cambridge. And rather than just <clears throat> spacing out in that time and, and not really engaging, he remained very diligent, continued his studies right there in his bedroom. And it was interesting, some of his work uh, became early calculus. And legend has it that this young man looked out his bedroom window and decided to go sit under the apple tree just outside of his bedroom where he was pondering and thinking and concentrating and an apple fell on his head. And a young Isaac Newton then uh, began from that developing theories of gravity and motion. And so I think it's significant that we understand these are not times for us to, to fear and run back and, and not engage, but really to press in. And let me bring that into a modern day story that I think is very significant. This last week I was talking with Caleb Martinez. Caleb and Kayla are part of our team here uh, at the church and they have children, Alyssa and Luke. Luke is eight years old. And uh, when he shared with me this story, I asked him, what do you think triggered this? And, and Caleb said that they have recently just decided to be more intentional in the way they're pursuing God in their homes, which is now what we all are doing, being more intentional in the way we're pursuing God in our homes. But it was interesting because one evening, Luke, at the age of eight, asked, I know it's my bedtime, but I want to go in my bedroom and just read my Bible by myself. And um, they said, you know, maybe he was just wanting to stay up late. They weren't sure, but they went ahead and allowed it. And uh, Caleb described that an hour after that eight-year-old went into his room, he came out in tears. And Luke said, I just encountered God. I was just filled with the Holy Spirit. Come on, I'm believing for that over our households, over our families. In Jesus' mighty name, God, give us wisdom in these times, that which the enemy meant for evil. God will turn to good. Help us to stay in an attitude of faith and absolute expectation as we continue to press in, Lord, to understand more of what your heart is in these times. May we recognize that we are your ambassadors in times of crisis, not to move into a, a sphere or an emphasis of fear, but into an attitude of faith where we rise up and make a difference in the lives of those around us in Jesus' mighty name. Let me encourage you, consider how you can and press into God during these times. Uh, don't back away from that, but let the extra time you may have on your hands be times of prayer. Make sure you're playing worship music during this time, just allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Spend time together as a family in devotion, reading Scripture. Do not just get up and turn on the news and let the world system have control of your thoughts. It was something I challenged all of the pastors uh, with that we've been online with this past weekend. Let everybody wake up and let the first thing that come to mind be the Word of God and a place of prayer and devotion before Him before you listen to anything that the news has to say so that we're staying fresh and alive. I want to encourage you, not only are we doing morning services today, but we're also then, in addition, coming back tonight and uh, everybody will be in their cars. Social distancing will happen as you just stay in your cars. Don't Go to other people's cars, uh, but pull into the parking lot and bring your phones and you can download the app or you can just go online to Safari to our website, but stream. And at seven o'clock tonight, we're going to be in here. There's going to be another specific word I want to bring at that time about where we are as the church in this particular season of our world, the nations of the world. 
So it's going to be an encouraging message, but there'll also be some fun and some uh, enjoyable things going on. We do have um, these bags for those that are interested. When you arrive and you come onto the premises, this is for the kids in the cars uh, while this is going on. It'll be a fairly brief event. We'll be under 30 minutes is our anticipation. That way nobody's needing to come in and go to the bathrooms because the doors will not be unlocked. So again, we want to be responsible in the midst of all of this and walk this out in a way that honors God and dignifies others. But please plan to be here tonight, 7 p.m. Those of you that are tuning in from out of town or uh, out of the country, then tune in online. We'll be broadcasting again, streaming, and everyone will be able to participate whether you're actually on the campus or not. Now this last week, we took the opportunity to see what God wanted to do when we were told we couldn't do what we had planned to do. We had this emphasis of an outreach planned, and then all of a sudden everything tilted and we were unable to do it. And we just began to ask God for wisdom. And you know, it was powerful what happened. The destiny drive-through. Tonight's the destiny drive-in, but this past week we did the destiny drive-through where people lined up and they pulled through and we were able to give a bag of groceries to families that were in need, and we served more than 1,250 people, and that's because of this amazing church family in a time of crisis and chaos in society. We're rising up and saying, we're going to help. We're going to do our part. And so we actually have a brief video that I want you to watch and see just a little bit of what took place on that day. Just incredible to see... Um, a line of cars going all the way around our parking lot, all the way down 29th Street to Sunny Lane. I actually called the mayor. <laughs> he sent police to come direct traffic. Uh, it was just incredible um, to see so many people just receiving encouragement, help, and hope. And so I, I just want to encourage you, those of us that are part of our church family and we're able to give, it's really not a time to give less. It's a time to give more because there are some in our church family that have lost their jobs, and we need to help them as well as helping those in our community. So I encourage you, find your uh, platforms to give online. Let's continue to make a difference just like God desires for us to do in the body of Christ. Tracy and I are praying and asking God for wisdom in that, and we want to be a part of creating solutions for people who are in places of great strain in the body of Christ and in the community around us. So I, I do want to just say, as I conclude, and I'm going to turn this to A.T. this morning, and then after he speaks, we're going to press into a place and a space of worship that's more accommodating to our homes. And I'll let you know right now, those of you that are tuning in Facebook Live, um, to actually get to the worship, you'll need to go to destinyokc.com once A.T. is finished, or you can go there now, just because we can't get worship through Facebook at this time. Um, but I want to just uh, explain to you that the prayer that I've been declaring for now uh, well over a year is a prayer that I realize is a significant word for us to declare together out of Psalms 112. Now, there are a lot of prophetic voices that we're hearing that are saying, as quickly as this has come, so will it go away. And we're believing for that, and we're declaring the supernatural hand of God to intervene in amazing and wonderful ways. But aside from all of that, I'm continuing to pray, and I invite you. Let's continue to pray and agree. Psalms 112, according to the Living Bible Translation, God's constant care for us will make a deep impression on all who see it, and we will not live in fear of bad news. And so we refuse to step into that place of fear. I want to encourage you that we would focus in on seeing things from God's perspective today as a church family. And again, I just feel the Lord is asking, do you see what I see. 
And that's what we need to see. So I'm going to ask if A.T., would you come? And uh, we're ready to receive what God wants to impart today in this very significant morning of the body of Christ. Good morning. It is a gift and a privilege to be in your homes. Um, I'm so thankful for the opportunity. Um, There's been a joke around this morning, but my opportunity to preach comes on this particular Sunday. Um, be a bit different. Um, one of the things that I'm uh, most not looking forward to is that uh, there's not a lot of people here to just shout amen at me. So if you're watching online and you really agree with something, just if, if everybody would just um, text Pastor Lawrence, uh, that would be fantastic. He'll shout out for you. Um, if you don't have his number, his number is 405. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm not going to do that. But um, uh, it's an honor to be with you and in your homes. We have a lot to cover. Um, We're going to be talking about how Christians handle fear. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to dive in at Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to get going here. We're going to read verses 4 through 9. Philippians 4, 4 through 9 reads, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are not limited by time and space or location, so I pray that wherever our Destiny family and guests are listening, you would be there with them. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, and at the preaching of your word, you would take it in in scalpel-like precision Um, cut into our hearts and reveal the things that you want to heal and touch by your grace. Lord, we realize these are special moments, and so we're asking for wisdom. And I pray that uh, the words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, what what I have to say that comes from you, you would just um, impart your grace behind it, and whatever I say that may not be from you, may it just fall to the floor flat. May you receive all honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was tempted to title this sermon, um, How to Overcome Fear. But as I began to study and prepare, I realized that was probably too optimistic of a title. I mean, the word overcoming fear makes it sound like you can, you can get to a place as a Christian where you never experience fear again, where you can totally be free from all fear And I think sometimes as Christians, if we're not careful, um, our language of of triumph can actually uh, make us appear to be disconnected from real life. In Psalms 56, verse 3, the psalmist writes, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. When I am afraid, not if I am afraid, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ does not offer us a life. If we follow Jesus, he does not offer us a life that completely avoid all the negative sides of this life. He actually offers us something better. 
And that is if we will follow him, we can be participants in an adventure in which there's risk and fear, or as he says, many troubles, but will ultimately end with the restoration of all things back to God. In other words, he doesn't promise us a fear-free life. He promises us that we will experience significant joy and, and significant life as we follow him and seeing his will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. But fear is one of these weird things we all have to deal with. And I, as I was studying, I read uh, in the book Surrendering to Love by Dr. David Benner, who's a Christian psychologist. This is what he writes. I just want you to hear it. One of the things that blocks us from gaining freedom from fear is that most fearful people don't think of themselves as afraid. Unless their fears are focused on something external, most people in bondage to fear fail to recognize the true nature of their inner distress. Fear that has not found a way to attach itself to external sources is very hard to identify. It has many different faces that all mask its essential nature. Some people fear intimacy while others fear solitude. Some fear loss of control while others fear a loss of image. Some fear the, uh, fear the strength of their feelings while others fear the loss of some comforting feelings. Some fear attention while others fear neglect. Some fear life while others fear death. Some fear pleasure while others fear pain. Some fear the loss of love while others fear love itself. But I believe fear can even be more elusive than this. I believe there's a lot of people who've created such successful strategies to avoid the things that they fear that they don't realize how afraid they really are. In other words, just because you're able to successfully avoid what makes you afraid, it still means fear is determining your life. So we can become really good at appearing not to be afraid. But it's in moments like these, moments like a pandemic, moments like a, the coronavirus, moments that force us to do things like this, um, that our fear can begin to find an external focus. And then it begins to, uh, like the fear that lies beneath the surface of our life can begin to raise its ugly head. So my first point this morning, I just wanted to normalize this. First point out of the gate, fear is a fundamental experience of being human. You don't have to teach a child how to be afraid. It's almost built into them. It is, to some extent, biologically. It is biologically built in, and some people have more of it than others. You can just visit a nursery, and you can watch babies, and you can see some babies are calm, have a calm demeanor. They're, they're relaxed and easygoing, while other babies are um, future lawyers, <laughs> just anxious or a little uptight, so to speak. In, in other words, fear... Uh, in its healthy form, was a gift from God meant to help us uh, respond in extreme situations of danger. We were designed by God that when we run into a bear or something, there's that fight, flight, or freeze kind of mentality, and that's biologically built right in. Now, some may say that's all just being a part of a fallen world, but the fallen world's the only world we're really living in, so we have to be honest about that. Fear becomes a problem, though, when fear begin, begins to be the interpreter of our lives, in other words, what was, fear was only meant to be uh, necessary in extreme circumstances, but when it becomes an, a motivator for our life, it has become unhealthy and it's become unholy. When, it begin, when fear and anxiety begin to take up more place in our soul than it was created by God to take, um, we're, we're, we're slipping down a road to idolatry, actually. Let me give you a couple things that fear does. Fear tethers us to something, whatever it is we're afraid of, and we begin to make decisions with that thing in mind. In other words, what begins to happen is fear begins to determine much of our decision-making. 
Fear also begins to affect our vision. There's an interesting passage in 1 Kings 19. Elijah had just done Mount Carmel, right? Fires rained down from heaven. He's killed 400 prophets of Baal. And then in, in 1 Kings 19, he receives, a, he receives a letter from Jezebel. And Jezebel says, I'm going to do to you what you've done to my prophets. And Eli the Bible says in 1 Kings 19, verse 3, in, in the KJV version, it says, And when Elijah saw it, he arose and ran for his life. In other words, he had done all of these amazing things that required courage, but when he saw what Jezebel was going to do to him, he ran. Fear has a way of cramming the uh, uh, bad outcomes into our face and say, stare at that. Would you look at that? Fear has a way of pulling our eyes down to focus on the issues. Fear ultimately then, not only, affect, not only do we tether ourselves to it, not only do we, it affects our vision, but fear ultimately affects and redirects our worship. In Judges chapter 6, verse 10, there's an interesting passage where God sends a prophet to Israel who's done evil in his sight. And this is what the prophet said. The Lord God said, do not fear the God of the Amorites, but you have not obeyed his voice. And a few verses later, he confronts him on their worship of Baal or idolatry. In other words, their sin was idolatry, but it began by not obeying the command, do not fear. You see, fear eventually affects and redirects our worship. And that's why I think that the, right question, the wrong question right now is, should Christians experience fear? Yes, we do. We're human. The real question is, how do Christians respond to fear in a way that separates us from the world? The reality is that Christians are human and we experience fear like everyone else. Yet, we have resources available to us in Jesus Christ, his word, and by his spirit that others do not. Thus, it's a very important issue. Just, just think about this. Thus, how Christians respond to fear in a way that is different than the world is a fundamental question of discipleship to Jesus. If you're going to be his disciple, we have to learn how to deal with our fear differently than the way the world does. So I want to take a moment and dissect fear. What's really underneath it? These are the kinds of questions I always ask myself. Maybe you don't, but hey, it's my sermon. I got the mic, so... What is the, what's underneath fear? Fear has the anticipation of harm, of loss, of pain, of, of um, sickness. Guilt and shame have to do with the past. Fear and anxiety have to do with the future. They're always looking forward, anticipating something going wrong. But underneath that anticipation of something going wrong is actually something more closer to the heart. And that is underneath all fear is the um, anticipation of the loss of control. Central to fear is that I'm afraid I'm going to lose my ability to manage the outcomes of the future. So ultimately underneath fear is the ugly truth about how frail and limited we are as human beings. There's an interesting story, and, and again, I, I just, it's interesting to me, and again, I have the mic, so I'll just share it, but uh, there's a scientist in the early part of the 20th century, the 1900s, who peered into space, he, uh, farther than any human being, and he wrote an article in the London Times in which he said, um, now man knows how small he is, for we've seen the edges of the universe. To which the journalist and Christian apologetics, apologist G.K. Chesterton responded with his own article saying this, this only proves how arrogant the sciences have become. For man did not need to peer into the universe to know he was small. The humble man knew he was small compared to the nearest tree. You see, the truth is we live our lives, we fill our lives with ways that we live in denial about how limited and frail we really are at managing the future. 
we live by distracting ourselves from the reality of how out of control we really are in managing our own lives. But I just want to remind you, denial is not fear, it's fantasy. And the result of denial is not peace, but amusement. Amusement, ah, the prefix ah means to negate. Muse means to think. So amusement means to negate your thinking. We, we distract ourselves, and it's not peace. It's denial that takes the form of distraction. So we buy and we spend money, we stockpile resources, we build bigger barns and we ask God to bless it just to have our bases covered. Now look, I'm not saying we shouldn't uh, practice wisdom and prepare or what the Bible would call prudence or frugality. But I want to remind you that when the Bible talks about prudence and wisdom and frugality, it's always motivated by stewardship and responsibility, not about fear and trying to manage the outcomes of the future. So let's be honest. What we are experiencing right now today is how fragile the world's peace really is. We are experiencing how fragile the world's peace really is. So fragile that toilet paper becomes something we're willing to fight over. Fear, again, often expresses itself in that need to find some mechanism of control that will eventually lead us, if we're not careful, to controlling others. Thus, it is very important that we understand this. When fear is our motivator, it becomes impossible to love. Now, fear and love both will mutually exist within our souls. That's part of being human. But they cannot mutually exist as motivations to act. Either fear will motivate us to act or love will motivate us to act. But if fear motivates us to act, eventually we will not be loving people, we'll be using people as a means to another end. Now, that fear and control can take the form of being a very sweet demeanor and a very kind, loving person, but it can still ultimately be to try to get what you want and to control the outcomes. So here is my, in my opinion, is the starting place between the Christian way of handling fear and the world's way. Christians can be honest about their own limits, their own frailty, their own inability to manage the outcomes. David told us in the Psalms, I'm, I'm but a blade of grass here today and gone tomorrow. That we can be honest about the truth of our lives, in fact, Christians are actually learning from Jesus as his disciple how to be okay with not managing the outcomes of our life because we believe that our father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is actually the one managing the world. So we can become okay with not being in control of the future because we trust that God is. When the early church said Jesus is Lord, it wasn't a marketing slogan. It was fundamental to who they believed. They believed that the one managing human history was not Caesar and not a king and not a god, but none other than the man from Galilee who was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and was seated next to the right hand of God and was now Lord over heaven and earth. So when they say Jesus is Lord, they actually meant it. That meant when, they, when the early church said Jesus is Lord, it meant Caesar wasn't. And that's exactly where Paul begins in our text. In verse 4, he begins, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Before Paul addresses our fears and anxieties, he calls us to see, to rejoice, literally the word, to delight in the Lord. Take delight in the fact that you are not in charge of the world. Take delight in the fact that uh, our president isn't in charge of the world. Take delight in the fact that the virus isn't in charge of the world. Take delight that China isn't in charge of the world. Take delight in the Lord, that he is the one ruling heaven and earth. 
that the very one who refused to abandon us but stepped into our suffering and suffered himself, becoming like us, took upon himself our death. He died for us and as us and is resurrected. That same God who loved us that much is Lord over all of our circumstances. So we rejoice in the Lord. And we can rejoice in the Lord because it's good news. It's really good news. You guys ought to be very grateful. I'm not in charge of the world. It's good news you're not in charge of the world. It's good news that, that again, presidents and governments is not in charge of the world. But not only is Jesus Lord of all, that if he's Lord of all, that means he's also Lord of your health and my health. He's Lord of my finances. He's Lord of my emotions. He's Lord of my children. He's Lord over my community. He's Lord of all, and I can rejoice in it. Similar to how Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, when there was civil unrest because the king Uzziah had died, and there was uncertainty about the future. Israel didn't know what the future was going to look like. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, In the year that king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Do you see the Christian perspective? The Christian can be honest about the world. I see the virus. I see the world going mad. I see the uncertainty. I see the dangers. I see the unpreparedness. I can see it all, but I lift my eyes and see also the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. We can see and be honest about the world, but we see also the Lord. So we rejoice in the Lord. Paul's next point is this. As we rejoice in the Lord... The next part is, let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This word uh, translated gentleness or reasonableness uh, means to consider um, all the facts. It means to be uh, humanely and reasonably uh, at the facts of the case. It means to look fairly or equitably. It could even mean, its root word, to be generous. You see, delighting in Jesus' lordship produces a gentleness born in the liberty that I do not have to fend for myself. That the carefree life that Jesus offers, not the pain-free life, not the problem-free life, but the carefree life that we can find as Jesus' disciples is, is uh, grounded in us believing, rejoicing, delighting in, and even enjoying that Jesus is Lord. Yeah. And just remember, you magnify what you enjoy. You glorify what you delight in. And so this gentleness, one of the reasons, for example, that Christians practice generosity in moments like this is precisely because we do not trust in our own riches, but we trust in Jesus. That we believe that all that we possess, we did not just get by our own hands, but was a gift from God, and God would continue to provide for us. So I encourage you, as Pastor mentioned at the beginning, at the start of the service, to continue to practice generosity, for it is an expression of our faith and confidence that Jesus is Lord and God is my provider. Gentleness, generosity, is what faith looks like in the face of fear. But Paul further intensifies his point. We to rejoice and delight in the Lord. That, um, that leads to a gentleness, but then he, keep, he goes on by saying, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is reachable. He's within reach is literally what it means. In other words, uh, it is both the goodness and greatness of Jesus and his lordship that produces this calming uh, disposition of gentleness, but he continues with the good news, and that is the Lord is close. The Lord draws near to us. In other words, the Lord is not off busy running the world. 
But the same Lord, this Jesus who is Lord over all, knows the particularities of your situation. He knows the pain of your circumstances. He knows the grief of your loss. He knows the fears and insecurities of your heart. The good news is that not only is God powerful and good, he's also caring and intimate. So this is the Christian's hope, just to begin, or I'm halfway through it now, but the Christian hope is not some petty mechanism of control like money nor power, but the very personal attentiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is my hope as a Christian in the face of fear? It is that the Lord of all the earth is personally attentive to my life and situation. That is the grounding place of my hope. So fear, all fear, is, has underneath it this concern for how I'm going to manage the outcomes. But Christians have had the same answer for 2,000 years. We do not feel the need to manage the future because we trust that Jesus is, and we believe Jesus has claimed us as his own. So when the world fears, it obsesses over locating these mechanisms of control, whether it be power through economic, or economics or or violence or the threat of violence or, or gathering and hoarding resources, whether that be um, gold or water or oil or toilet paper, right, whatever it may be, it, when the world reaches out to find these means of control, uh, that's what they do when they're afraid, that the world reaches out for control, but not so with Christians. Look at the next verse that Paul tells us. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, I want you to hear this. When the, the world, when afraid, reaches out for control, when Christians are afraid, we reach out to God. When the world is afraid, it reaches out for control. When Christians are afraid, we reach out to God. This is, reminds us a little bit of what Paul had said in Philippians 2, where in verses 6 and 7, where Jesus, though being equal with God, did not consider that equality something to grab a hold of. Jesus wasn't trying to grasp for power or position or control, but he emptied himself and became a man. When the world is fearful, it reaches for control. It tries to grab, grab a hold of some mechanism of control. But Christians, we reach out to God. So how do we practically reach out to God? Let's look at a couple of things that Paul says here. We're going to dive now into these three words that Paul uses into our text here. Number one, he says we reach out to God by prayer. By prayer. Uh, the word by in Greek can also be translated through prayer. In other words, prayer is the mechanism by which we process and release our fears. The word here for prayer implies a conversation, a dialogue, a a back and forth between two parties. In other words, what do Christians do when they're afraid? They bring their fears into conversations with God. We name our fears and we discuss them with God. That may sound something like this. God, I am afraid I'm going to lose my job. Or God, I'm afraid that having lost my job, I'll not find another one in time to meet the demands of life. Or God, I'm afraid the world's going crazy and maybe me with it. Or God, I'm afraid I might hurt my children if I'm locked up with them for four straight weeks. Or maybe, God, I'm afraid I'm not worthy of love. Or God, I'm afraid that if I trust you, you'll let me down. We bring our fears into our conversation with God because the first thing it helps us do is it helps us name our fears. It helps us put language on our fears. And this is why it's important, if you'll just please hear this point. You cannot release 
surrender, yield, deny, or rebuke something you cannot name. Yes, we are to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Yes, we are to surrender things to Jesus. But if you can't name them, you can't surrender them. So naming your fears is one of the first ways we defang our fears. It's one of the first ways we remove it of its, of its power and control over our lives by just naming in the presence of God what it is we're afraid of. And then in conversation with him, we can ask him about these fears or what's underneath them. Like, God, what, what, what am I really afraid of in this? Or what am I anticipating will come? Or God, what, what, what about the issue? What, what is the issue here that's impacting my soul so deeply? Or God, what do you have to say about these fears? Or God, what are you wanting to be for me right now that I cannot be for myself? Or Lord, what are you asking me to trust you with that I'm finding so difficult in the face of this fear? But this is what's important. What's important is while you're, you're looking at your fear and you're examining your fear, you're doing so in conversation with God. And so what you do, just like if I was talking to Pastor Lawrence about my children, I have my children before my mind, but always in relationship to my conversation with Pastor Lawrence. The same things happens when I talk with God about my fear. I have my fear in mind and I examine them, but I'm always doing so in the presence to or tethered with God. So what it allows me to do is it allows me to confront my fear without my fear ever anchoring me. Because God remains my anchor as I have a conversation with him about my fears. So we bring our fears by prayer through this conversation. We take our anxiety and our fear into conversation with God. Then Paul says, and we do it by supplication. And he said supplication. The word supplication means um, we present our need, our lack, um, our want, even our desire in some cases. Some, sometimes this word is supplication is used as a deep longing or earning, a deep desire. This is why I think supplication is so important for us. Dallas Willard once said this. Our prayer life will languish when we separate it from our heart's desire. I want to say it again. Our prayer life will always languish when we separate it from our heart's desire. Look, your heart's desire may not be, may not be godly. It may not be God's best for you. But one of the ways that God goes about changing our desires is calling us into supplication. When I'm honest about what I think I need and desire, my soul is laid bare before the God who loves me unconditionally. And then God can either answer my prayer or he can create in me a new heart with different desires. But either way, the best place for my desires and longings and needs is in prayer with God. Now, oftentimes what we reach for to satisfy our need will actually not do it. Imagine for a moment the, the uh, 16-year-old boy who comes home to his dad and says, Dad, I need a new truck. Well, we all know he doesn't need a new truck. But what he might be saying is, I need to feel validated among my peers, and I think a new truck will get me that. Or I need to know that I'm significant. And if, if everyone saw me in a new truck, maybe that will get it for me. Maybe instead of a new truck, what he needs is some time with his dad. But the point is that, that, that what he thinks will satisfy his need is often disconnected from his deepest heart's need. And it's usually the same way with us. What do your fears say about what it is that you need? Do you, feel that, uh, do you need to feel secure and you're hoping money or control will get you that? Do you need to feel safe and think toilet paper and a two-year supply of Vini weenies is going to make you feel safe? Do we, do, we think, uh, do we need peace and we think that understanding all the data and staying up with all the latest news is going to provide you with some sort of peace? 
You see, by prayer we name our fears. By supplication we discover our needs. By prayer we name our fears. By supplication we discover our needs. So we bring our fears into conversation with God and name them. And then we begin to tap into the need that's underneath the fear and present it to God. And then Paul reminds us the attitude in which we are to do this. We're not to do this as beggars, but as children of God. We are to do by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, with gratitude, with appreciation. Now, Paul's not clear in this text. Does he mean we're to be thanking God for his future provision? Or are we thank because we just made supplication for? Or are we thanking God for his past provision? I don't know. But either way, this is what I do know. Gratitude produces humility. Humility produces trust. And trust in God is the Christian alternative to fear-driven attempts at controlling the world. Gratitude produces humility. Humility produces trust. Trust in God is the Christian alternative to fear-driven attempts at controlling our world. Thanksgiving draws our attitude, our attention, if you would, to God's faithfulness. And, and the character of God's faithfulness is exactly what we're putting our trust in. Let me ask you a simple question. Why, when God offers you peace, would you even trust yourself? You know your own limitations, if you're honest. You know how many times you can't do all the things you even tell yourself you're going to do. You know how many times you actually showed up at the gym, given that amount of times you told yourself you're going to show up at the gym. You know how many times you told yourself you're going to eat this way and you didn't. You know how many times. Why would we put so much trust in ourselves? When the God who made promises to us and was relentlessly faithful in Jesus Christ offers us his faithfulness to trust in, why would we take the time to even consider trusting in ourselves? So with thanksgiving, in the fourth point, he says, we present your request to God. So you bring your fears into conversation with God and name them. You get a hold, they discover the need underneath it. And with thanksgiving now, we present our request to God. Request is the dynamic of a loving relationship, right? Christians are to live by faith, which means we live by request. We ask, seek, and knock, which is really another name for prayer. When the Bible says uh, you have not because you ask not, for example, it's not a way of you know, getting you, uh, encouragement to materialism that God can just get you whatever you want if you'll just ask it. No, you have not because you ask not is an invitation to be vulnerable to God who has first made himself vulnerable to you. Learn to live with your hands out to God. That the Christian is never to live by the resources of his own barn, but by request in a living God. So God calls us to pray and to ask, to make a request of him. Just imagine that for a moment. Can you imagine the God of all creation saying, come and talk to me. Tell me what it is that you need. I mean, I'm just wondering, is there ever a moment where Jesus looks over to God and goes, why did we put a mouth on him? I mean, we knew what they were going to say before they say it. Why not just, you know? I want you to just take a moment and imagine something with me. Uh, seriously, if you would, just close your eyes at home. If you would, just close your eyes for a moment and imagine this. Imagine you walk into work, and the moment you walk into work, they say, hey, we're making cuts, and you're one of the cuts. We're sorry, but we're letting you go. Effective immediately. You turn and walk out, get in your car on your way home, your front left tire blows out and your car swerved into the ditch and hits the tree and totals your car. You're okay, but now you've lost your job and your car is completely totaled. How do you feel? 
Now imagine that same scenario. You walk in, they're laying off, you got cut off, you're, you got let go, you get in your car, blow out, swerve, total the car. You're okay, but your car's totaled. The only difference is you're the son of Bill Gates. Are you as scared? Are you as concerned? You can open your eyes. You're probably not near as concerned. But let me just say this. How much more shall we, the children of God, worry about our provision and protection when the God of all creation has said, I've adopted you as my sons and daughters? The same God who told us in Matthew 7, which one of you, if his sons ask for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask? We are called to live by request. It is impossible to trust God and not live by request. To request something of God is to live in trust of his timing, his love, his power, and his promise. So Paul tells us what to do. Bring your fears into conversations with God and name them. Uh, discover the need underneath them in supplication. Do it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And then ask. Ask God for what it is that you need. And then he moves to telling us what God's response will be. Verse 7, And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, when Christians are afraid, they reach out to God through conversation and supplication and gratitude. We make our request. But the result is not always that God comes immediate breakthrough. That's not always the God's response. He actually gives us something more valuable. He gives us the peace of God. Not the fragile peace of this world, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Not the peace of this world, which takes the form of control and mistrust. But he gives us his own peace the peace that derives from God himself. Pause for a moment and think about how peaceful it must be to be God. He gives you that. He lets you share in his own peace. That's what he's giving you. We yet again, we see the beauty of the gospel. We see the goodness of God. You bring your fears, your worst parts of us. You bring all, we bring our fears, our insecurities, all the things that make us go crazy, and God exchanges it with us with his perfect peace. So let me just put it to you this way. God's wisdom will allow what his power could have prevented so that your fears will be brought to the surface and he can exchange it for his perfect peace. God's wisdom will allow what his power could have prevented to cause your fears to arise to the surface so he can exchange it with you for perfect peace. Yeah. That's really good news, isn't it? And then he says this peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We need to just touch on this as we conclude. The fragile peace of the world is completely dependent on humanity's ability to manage the outcomes of the future. At the heart of the world's peace is fear and mistrust, which requires a constant vigilance and protection and always looking at the data and extrapolating to the future and making guesses about how to be the best prepared. But we are all aware right now of how unpredictable the future can be. And this kind of peace is always a pseudo-peace because it produces a heart motivated by fear and a mind that has to be constantly at work to go ahead of itself to try to secure its future. But the peace of Christians is the very peace of God, and it's this peace that rests in the reality that our good creator God is managing the world, and he's managing my life. So through God's peace, my heart can be guarded from fear and idolatry. 
My heart is kept safe in the love of God. Not only that, it will guard my mind. This mind that in the world's mind, uh, when motivated by fear, has to be constantly taking in all the data and extrapolating to prepare itself for the future. But my mind can be at ease in the peace of God because it's fixed on him because I trust in him. So this very peace of God guards my heart from idolatry and my mind from the exhausting, never-ending drivenness to control the future. And he says he does all this in Jesus Christ, which means in the reality that God has revealed about himself in Jesus. Let me just make it really clear as I begin to conclude, as I start to land the plane. Whether or not God loves you and whether or not he is worthy of your trust is never to be determined by your present circumstances. But by the fact, as Romans 5 tells us, God demonstrated his love for you, that while you were his enemy, Christ died for you. So in other words, this moment does not determine whether or not God is trustworthy or if he loves me. His love has been forever decided in the fact that God stepped into my suffering as himself in Jesus Christ, took upon himself my death for me and as me, was crucified and resurrected and ensures for me a future new hope. So my, um, my judgment of God is never, let me put it this way, God's love for you is never on trial again. He is forever settled it. He will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, think on these things. Whatever you've learned from me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, when the world in fear is seeking some mechanisms of control to, out, to control the outcomes of life, focused entirely on the future and how to predict and prepare, Paul urges Christians to focus their attention and their minds on the good things that God has done or is doing. If I trust God with the future, then I can begin to see, I can be present and to see the good things happening around me. Christians, after bringing our fears into conversations with God, after discovering our needs and supplication, after in thanksgiving presenting our request, after receiving God's peace, we are now to turn our attention not to what God hasn't done, but to what God has done and is doing, and then join him in it. Mm. While the fearful world is driven to secure the provision and protections, Christians are free to love, serve, give, and contribute to the good things God is doing around them. So let me just put it your way. The peace of God frees us from the burden of self-sufficiency so that we can be ambassadors of peace in a terrified world. It's hard to be a peacemaker when you're preoccupied with your own provision and protection and relying on your own self-sufficiency. And this is where Paul concludes, and I'll conclude today. He says, practice these things. Paul has brought together contemplation and mission, the inner life and your fears and the outer life of looking around you to see what God's doing. He's brought to together the spiritual and the practical, God's love for you personally, but also God's love for the world. But he says, practice these things. Years ago, I was asked to teach a, on um, to some pastors, about 40, 50 pastors in the room, and I taught on bringing our pain before God and our betrayal. We experienced a lot of betrayal as pastors, and so I was trying to help them process that. man raised his hand, and he said, listen, about three or four times in my 30 years of pastoring, I've heard something like this. Do you have anything else? And you can imagine, uh, as a young preacher, the intimidation that has. 30 years of pastor experience, do you have anything else? And you know, I was tempted, to, my brain running around trying to find something else to give him. But in a stroke of, not genius, but the Holy Spirit, 
I turned to him and said, you've heard it three or four times. When's the last time you practiced it? And how often do you practice it? And he put his head down. This sermon will do you no good if you don't practice these things. It does you no good to hear and read and, and to get more material of the things you can do if you won't take time to bring your fears into conversation with God. If you won't take the time to name your needs in front of God. If you will not take the time to, with gratitude, present your request to God. You have to practice these things. And as we do all of these things, we can do it in the quiet confidence that God, the God of peace, will be with us. So we can act in bold love in times of uncertainty because we know God acts with us. So here's the one thing I just want to say to all the Christians that are watching, all the church, if I could just speak to other churches, I would say this. We are not alone, so let's not act like it. The God of all the earth is with us. So just a couple of questions as I end. What if all ours and the world's desperate attempts at controlling the outcomes of the future were all attempts to just try to get peace? And what if all the hoarding, stealing, fighting, greed, selfishness, violence that marks the world away from God were simply humanity's attempt to grab a hold of the peace that God would gladly offer for free to those who will come, ask, and trust? What if the only way the world can see that their desperate attempts at trying to grab control of the world is futile. What if the only way the world can see that the, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is holding out peace to them is through a church who embodies peace in the midst of uncertainty? My point is this, how the church, how we as Christians, as we as the people of God respond in these moments will either betray the message that we are called to share or will embody it leading to a deeper understanding and a more convincing witness. And that is where Paul, I just want to end with Paul's words in Philippians 2, 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, standing in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything. This is a clear sign to them of your salvation. So your God's presence to real life have a deep conversation with God about your fears this week. Journal those prayers. Listen and journal how you feel God's responding. Here are a couple questions that you can ask yourself, whether right now as we, as we move into worship or later, but here are a couple questions. What fears do you need to bring into your conversation with God? What do you avoid in order to keep from experiencing fear that you need to bring into your conversations with what are some common mechanisms of control you reach out for when you feel afraid? And maybe we need to name those in the presence of God. Look, we're going to take a few moments now. We're going to transition into worship. Because that is primarily our response to any kind of revelation, to the reading of God's word, is to worship. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be led into worship. If you're watching through uh, Facebook, there you may need to transition over to the live stream in order to participate with us in worship. But let's just take a moment and turn our hearts to the God of all peace. Lord, we confess that we do experience fear. We don't live in denial, that we are frail, that our attempts at managing the world are futile. And we lift our eyes to you and just say how glad we are how much our heart rejoices 
that you are Lord of heaven and earth. And so, Lord, we just fix our eyes in such a way that whatever may come our way, we know you will only use it to prove your steadfast love and faithfulness to us. So we determine to become settled in to trusting you. May we not ignore our fears, but bring them to you. And may our fears become a place of vulnerability and which takes us deeper into intimacy with you. In a time when the world's going mad, may we go deeper. We thank you for this invitation. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray you would enter into the homes, the cars, um, the atmosphere of everyone who's listening and watching. And as we worship, may you meet us here and bring peace our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name, our only hope.